0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheesestateUniversity.com.
2: Listen to these desperate attempts for people to mention Daylight Savings Time in the same sentence as recipe. It is hilarious. hilarious. Saviour has an article that was like, you know, what to cook during Daylight Savings Time, literally. And this is how they're really trying to make it all work. They're like, after you figure out how to reset all of your clocks as if that takes such a long time. <laughs> you can wipe like the sweat off your brow from resetting all your clocks all morning long. You don't have time to make a long dinner so you just need to toss a salad or make a sandwich. Refinery29 Famous Food Website <laughs> Five Easy Weeknight Meals to Make with that Extra Hour of Sunlight <laughs> Nope. No, <laughs> no. Cool Mom Eats five easy dinners that pair well with Daylight Savings Time. She just like this pairs well with Daylight Savings Time. (laughs) She's not even trying. For some reason, everyone's like Daylight Savings Time is coming. You better have a quick dinner in mind because
3: (laughs) you are running out of time
2: in the day. (laughs) Wow. And then Country Living says avoid the dreaded Daylight Savings energy lag with this delicious trick. And I did look up the recipe for this. So the delicious trick the country living wants you to use to avoid the dreaded daylight savings energy lag is morning energy mocha balls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you just heard Nicole Bailey and Zara Tangora from Life's a Banquet, HRN's comedy podcast loosely about food history. As Zara and Nicole have noted, everyone loves a date peg. So, Now that we have adjusted our clocks and our meal plans for daylight savings, we are setting aside some time to celebrate that it is officially the first week of spring. In this episode, we're cleaning out the archives and dusting off some stories to welcome in this season of new beginnings. We'll hear about edible flowers in traditional Mexican cooking, and the impact of quarantine on the community gatherings of Ramadan, and more. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three on HRN.
4: Meet and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three.
2: One meat, three sides.
5: Food, news, and storytelling.
2: A square meal for your ears.
1: Meat and Three. Back
0: in May of 2019... Dana Cowan, who hosts Speaking Broadly on HRN, traveled to Japan to explore seasonal and hyper-local cuisine. She recorded portions of her trip for a special episode of HRN on Tour.
6: I've traveled all the way to Kyushu, which is an island in southern Japan. And with me, I have my guide for the day, Shima Fuzu. The natural
0: world has a profound influence on the cultural connotations of spring. As warmth and longer days return, plant and animal life renews. Shima shared some springtime influences on Japanese culinary traditions.
6: That's also spring. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the season that we're really here to celebrate. What does spring mean um, in Japan? So in Japan, we say that spring is the season of bitter taste because all the mountain vegetable the spring vegetable have this bitter taste in common and this is because they get rid of the all the toxin they've accumulated during winter season so the bitterness I always think of spring as a time of transformation as you said but joy because you're going from the you know the dark days to all sure. the light but I don't ever equate light and bitter and but now I know why it's those darn bears (laughs) right so when bears wake up from the hibernation the first thing they eat are these bitter vegetables Mm -hmm. so they really wake up and go back to their active life (laughs) right okay so um it's like a little it's detoxing the japanese style
0: one of the highlights of the trip was a meal at mr sato's restaurant Chef Sato only used ingredients that were hyper-seasonal and local within a 10-mile range. This gave Dana a first-hand look and taste into Japanese spring delicacies such as blowfish and bamboo shoots.
6: Another spectacular spring ingredient was little live fish. So after we sat down and we saw those big bamboo shoots, Right next to it there was a bowl. Now it looked like a crazy amount of swimming, you know, swimming eyeballs mm-hmm. because these fish <laughs> are practically translucent. They don't seem to have much body, but uh-huh. they definitely have eyes and they <laughs> move at quite a rapid uh-huh. rate. What are those little fish called? These are called the Shirowo and they're, they're another local specialty that are fished in a river nearby and the season is ending now and these little fish you also eat them live you and you know cooking style that's called dancing fish style so you would just swallow them and have them dancing all their way to your store and that's supposed to be good <laughs> i don't want to eat dancing fish <laughs> but they're very small i suppose they slide down i, w- I felt uh, very happy that in this case the dancing fish The way that we had them, they were in a soup. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they were in a beautiful soup with wakame uh, that was silky and had practically dissolved. Mm -hmm. And uh, white asparagus is also in season here. This gigantic white asparagus that was sliced and then put into this broth. So you had the asparagus, which if... I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, actually tasted a lot like green asparagus because it had more flavor than I think a lot of white asparagus had. Um, So that's a little bit crunchy. And then the silky, silky wakame and then the fish, Mm -hmm. which had stopped being translucent and they turned white. Right. And they were a little crunchy when they were cooked. Yeah.
0: Now, four years on, Dana continues to explore seasonality and locality, this time in her own backyard. In a few weeks on April 12th in Brooklyn, Dana will be presenting the second installment of HRN's Spring Live Event series with a panel on foraging like a local. Dana will be joined by Melissa Metrick, host of HRN's Fields, and Tama Matsuoka Wong, forager, meadow doctor, lawyer, and owner of Meadows and More, to talk about exciting ways to see, taste, and experience the natural world, whether among the concrete or the trees. For more information or to reserve tickets, go to heritageradionetwork.org eventseries As the days grow longer and your garden or local park thaws, you might be wondering how to capture the essence of spring in your cooking. For some helpful inspiration, here's a conversation from Cooking in Mexican from A to Z that's all about cooking with flowers. Our hosts, Aron Sanchez and Zarela Martinez, talk with a chef and cookbook author to learn about how edible flowers are an essential element of the state of Veracruz's traditional cuisine. Here's Lester Loon Sanchez, no relation to Aron and Zarela.
7: First, I try to seek help from specialists like botanicals and anthropologists and researchers who had work on the subject, you know, edible flowers. Um, I didn't have an encouraging outlook and they told me you won't find more edible flowers than we have found. At that time there were around 10 or 12 edible flowers registered in Veracruz, so I don't care. Um, I decided to travel around Veracruz, North Veracruz, Middle Veracruz, South Veracruz, uh, uh, and try to looking for any flowers that were not registered yet. Uh, well, my surprise was enormous when I found many other flowers that were used for food here in Veracruz. Nowadays, my word includes 65 flowers, edible flowers and more than 300 recipes. Wow. Uh, we are talking about a six years investigation. So there are a lot of edible flowers here in Veracruz.
0: The role of edible flowers in Veracruz's traditional cuisine, like so much of Mexican cooking and culture, represents a melding of indigenous, African, and European influences.
7: I think flowers or edible flowers is something that start in Hispanic Mexico. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Edible Flowers, we talk about something that has 2,000 years The story, yeah, the history. For hispanic cuisine is something that has already happened, while the indigenous cuisine is still alive. A lot of the information of the receipts in my book come from that Veracruz that is still alive, uh, called Afro-descent yes. or indigenous Yeah, maybe Hispanic influence or totally mestizo. That's Veracruz. Well, we cannot deny that food with edible flowers has origin in the pre Hispanic times. But of course, the influence remains in Mexico thanks to our indigenous fruits. Yep. Although, European also ate flowers. Yes. African ate flowers. That's the reason why we have processed and hibiscus flowers in the Veracruz cuisine. Yes. So I tried to explain that cooking with edible flowers is very complex and it doesn't end in the pre-Hispanic times. It continues for 500 years, creating a new way of eating, uh, which sometimes called Veracruz cuisine. Someone else told me sometime Mexicans are flower eaters. <laughs> and that's true. And not only our flowers, we also learn to eat another flowers. Yeah, mm. like Hispanic flowers or African flowers. Mm-hmm.
0: Lester Loon incorporates these flowers into his cookbook recipes and his restaurants mm-hmm. menu.
7: So let's talk a little bit about that because for everyone that doesn't know about some of the more popular flowers that are used in Mexican cuisine, I think the first one we have to acknowledge is the flor de calabaza, no, right? The, the zucchini flower, no? It probably has the most recognition, right? I think we can agree as far as that, but then you move into the hibiscus or the habika, like you said, which is, is it in the sorrel family or is it a violet? So let's talk a little bit about the most recognizable flowers that are used. No, What do you think for our listeners? Yeah, I think we have three or four flowers. Uh, for example, isote flower. Uh, there are a lot of receipts with uh, Isoto flower, uh, maybe also Gasparito flower. It's also, uh, of course, uh, squash blossom.
0: Flowers are not just delicious, they also add a symbolic element to Lesterloon's cooking.
7: So, in the Asian Mexico, flora represents life, death, gods, uh, creation, man, the language, poetry, art, friendship, lordship a uh, captive in war, heaven, earth, the heart, uh, even a calendaric sign. So, it accompanied the man from his birth to his death. Yeah, evidently the flower was one of the basic elements in the pre symbolic symbolic communication as a synonym for precious. So, when we decide to eat flowers, we did not only as a physiological need, yeah? We did because it represents our way of understanding the world, the way we eat the world. So that's, that's very important, yeah? It represents birth, and it's the female. The female is the flower, it's where life is given.
0: To hear this conversation in full, Check out episode 41 of Cooking in Mexican from A to Z, titled Cooking with Flowers. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections.
8: It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, incredible training resources are.
1: They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development.
8: You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University.
1: Cheese State's three part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter.
8: The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three volume resource, it's all digital online.
1: At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate.
8: Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter. Like, what is rennet, And like, why is this cheese so expensive? And can pregnant people even eat cheese?
1: At Cheese State, you're among experts. You're among scholars. You're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheesestateUniversity.com.
0: Welcome back to Meet in 3. April showers bring May flowers. But what about when all that rain causes soil erosion? We're celebrating a springtime hero in our next story. Cover Crops. Cover crops are plants grown solely for the purpose of capturing rain and protecting and enriching the soil for the success of future harvests. In our next story, we hear from Chris Reynolds, Midwest Director for American Farmland Trust, and a fifth-generation farmer from Nacomas, Illinois, in connection with Rob Oakshot, producer of No Farms, No Future on HRN.
4: That raindrop's moving pretty
1: dang quick. I think it's something like 20 miles an hour, right? When that hits the bare dirt, it's going to break things apart. So if we can get that to hit, you know, a dead plant, you know, a stalk or um, a living plant, and we can slow that water down, that's a huge, huge benefit to water infiltration. In Illinois,
5: a lot of state officials are talking about cover crops with a particular focus on reducing the amount of nutrient loss that flows from some farms and pollutants from city streets down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. While many farmers in the state are using cover crops successfully, most are not planting cover crops. The state strategy contends that 35% should be the minimal target, while at the moment, less than 6% of Illinois cropland is planted to cover crops every year.
4: Illinois is the prairie state, so most of our soils were formed from lust and under under prairie vegetation. And so we have some really deep soil profiles. Before we started conventionally farming the land, a lot of the soils had upwards of six to eight percent organic matter in the soil, which means they had a lot of carbon already in the soil. That helps hold more water. It helps increase water infiltration. So we're blessed with these really deep black soils that that have a lot of organic matter in them. Now, since we began farming, we've seen the organic matter cut in half in a lot of places as that carbon has went back up into the atmosphere from tillage. Predominantly, when I think about my grandfathers and the crop rotations they had, they typically had four or five different crops in a rotation. They were planting a diverse crop rotation, but they were also planting clover after wheat, and then they would plow it under to add nitrogen to the soil for that next year's crop. They all had livestock on the farms, and they used the different grains for livestock feed, and they used the land throughout the year to apply manure from the animal's Today, most of Illinois is dominated by corn and soybeans and corn and soybean production and a little bit of wheat still in certain parts of the state. And we're seeing, you know, I think some of the challenges that we're seeing today are are weather related. We're seeing fewer favorable planting days in the spring to get the crops planted. With farmers
5: facing tough conditions in a variety of ways, AFT decided to support and help lead a cover crops program launched by the Illinois Department of Agriculture, The Fall Covers for Spring Savings program has proven to be a powerful
4: way of encouraging farmers to start transitioning toward cover crops. The nutrient loss reduction strategy had just came out in 2015, and we were all working towards a common goal of reducing nutrient losses. So as it relates to field tile, you know, one of the great things about tile is it makes the land more productive, but it can also be a leaky system. And so we can lose nitrates from the soil through the water, and they eventually end up in the Gulf of Mexico. And we recognize that cover crops can have a big benefit in reducing that overall nutrient loss that's that's happening from cropland. And farmers in general just love to tell their success stories about how they're trying something new. Maybe they're planting soybeans into the green cereal rye instead of terminating it early. We continue to try to figure out better methods to manage the cover crops, better seeding rates, better seeding dates. And that helps all of us to be able to provide more technical assistance to more farmers and to try to get things right. When we work with farmers that are planting cover crops, we want to make sure they have all the information they need to be successful because we want them to continue to do it.
0: So when those heavy spring showers come... Cover crops are crucial to the land as they retain rain, allowing water to steadily trickle down through the soil. Doing so, they are mitigating erosion and maintaining soil's fertility and quality while supporting microbial, plant, and wildlife diversity. This week is not only the start of spring, but the beginning of Ramadan. Ramadan is the holy Islamic month, a month of spiritual rejuvenation where Muslims around the world abstain from food and drink each day. Two years ago, just weeks into a global pandemic, HRN reporter Dania Abdelhamid shared this inspiring personal story of how some Muslims found ways to observe their faith in spite of the pandemic. Here's an excerpt of that piece.
3: For many Muslims, the month is an opportunity to deepen their spiritual practice, both individually and in community with others. For me, Ramadan is associated with shared community iftar dinners and crowded nightly prayers. But there are a million ways to observe the holy month, and every family, culture, and community has different traditions. But even despite those differences, Muslims around the world are bracing themselves for how social distancing will impact the holy month.
9: Since the pandemic and everything, it's just been really difficult in trying to figure out how to make this iftar and this Ramadan as meaningful as the ones before because food does play such a central role in Ramadan.
3: That's Layla, a 25-year-old Muslim based in Baltimore. For the past two years, she's hosted a community iftar for Black Muslims in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia region. The iftar provides a safe, affirming space for Black Muslims who may not always feel welcome in Arab or DC centered Muslim spaces.
9: You will not be asked if you're a convert. You won't be asked, you know, it, whether or not you know al-Fatiha or whatever the ridiculous questions Black Muslims get at other iftars. So that was something that I'm really going to miss this Ramadan. Like, just being free in a space. I think a lot of people are going to miss it, too. And I've seen, you know, a few elders talk about, uh, Oh, this is actually like a blessing in the skies, and this is a chance for people to really focus on what matters. But I don't know, I feel like I like to negate that by saying, like, Allah purposely made food a very central thing in Ramadan and our holidays. Um, Ramadan and Eid being our holidays, and each of them surrounding food, or abstaining from food, or indulging in food, and food really being a spiritual bonding act for Muslims. And to not have that on the same scale this Ramadan is going to be really
3: different. I know I'll definitely miss it. Over the last few years, I've started shedding some of the traditions I grew up with and begun developing my own. Black iftar has become one of those traditions. And not being able to attend the iftar this year feels like I'm losing something valuable. To me, Ramadan both is and isn't about food. On the one hand, only eating twice a day, once before sunrise and once after sunset, makes food and eating feel even more significant. And on the other hand, Ramadan is a month of spiritual rejuvenation, a month of deep reflection and soul work. Sure, food and the restriction of it is an important element, but it's not the main thing.
0: This year, we hope that everyone who observes Ramadan will be able to find their way back to their community spaces and experience sharing Iftar together again. Ramadan Mubarak. You can find out more about this week's guests and topics, plus details and tickets to our April 12th event, Foraging Like a Local, in our show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Charlotte Rhodes, Kate Dario, Candice Chamel, and Dania Abdelhamid. Meet in Three is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Matt Patterson, and me, Katie Mosman Wadler. Our audio engineer for this episode is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch, whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, Write us at ideas at ideasatmeatand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.
10: Hi, HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training.